This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. There's been a lot of talk about infrastructure and the cost of infrastructure in this state over the last week or so. And when we talk about infrastructure, we talk about the financial burden, the financial blowouts and how that will impact us all. But we never talk about how it will impact our well-being and our health and what bad infrastructure really costs us as a state. We know that too many of us are overweight, but how many of us realise that where you live and town planning and infrastructure will determine your chances of obesity, heart disease and diabetes? The socioeconomic impacts of poor town planning. The further out you live, the higher the chance you have of being overweight and unhealthy. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Daniel Miles, joining you from ABC Warnable. Daniel, it's uncomfortable to talk about weight at the best of times, but the idea of obesity or being unhealthy is determined by the suburb you live in. Hmm. It feels like something is just not quite right. Yeah, good morning, Rochelle. It, it's a little disheartening, really, to think that there's a financial divide or an impediment that's due to cost of being able to be fit, healthy and, and live a, a really happy life. To think that only those who can afford it can have access to these things that unconsciously help us to be fit, healthy and have that, that sense of vitality is almost flattening in a sense. You think of things like access to GPs and health services, that's that's one thing that's really clear and really obvious. But there's so much more than just that. It can be things like having access to green spaces, ovals, grassed areas. It can be as simple as having a tree-lined street mm-hmm. versus having to walk in the blazing sun in the middle of an Australian summer, which is something that I think everyone has that real vital feeling of. Even uh, having and an unforgettable feeling. Oh, Some of the yeah. suburbs are built without actual footpaths. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what that's like. But, I mean, we, we heard on the show on Friday about affordability to things like uh, sports carnivals and, and shows and schools that having to cancel inter-school sports because they can't hire a bus and afford to get kids such a long distance to somewhere that they can undergo these sporting activities... They're all financial impediments that stop people from having, you know, thri- stop people from thriving. Yeah. And it's right across the spectrum. If we're being impacted at inter-school carnivals and primary school, that's one element. But it also goes right up to, to the elderly and how they've got access to things that are going to make their lives manageable as they continue on. So when it comes down to your postcode impacting your health, your weight, your well-being, that's... That's a really frustrating thing. There's got to be solutions. Absolutely. And as we're starting to build further out and fundamentally building suburbs from scratch, mm-hmm. what needs to be included? You know, what checks and balances need to be there? So do you feel like where you live, your postcode impacts your health? Does it impact your weight? Does it impact everything from your heart, what your kids can and can't do? Does where you live impact your health? And in the studio as well, Dr. Sandro DeMeo, of course, CEO of Vic Health. Where we live determines, Sandro, whether or not we will be healthy. That doesn't feel right. 
Yeah, good morning, Rochelle. It's great to be here for this really important and timely conversation. I mean, our, our postcode does have a huge bearing on our life expectancy and on the health that we can expect to achieve across our life course. And I mean, I should start by saying that this is a global phenomenon. This is not just Victoria and this is certainly even not just Australia. Uh, but we see things like a 3.7 times, you know, 3.7 times more likely to have diabetes if you're in the most remote parts of Australia versus urban, uh, more like one, one and a half times more likely to have a heart attack. Uh, we see things like, uh, you know, the, the, the wealthiest neighbourhoods in Victoria, you know, most people on average are living about 400 metres from a source of fresh food. Uh, lowest income neighbourhoods, that number jumps to 14 kilometres. So you start to see how all the different factors, I mean, there is one uh, overlap between postcode and obviously income. So uh, more expensive parts of Victoria, generally people are on higher incomes, which has which gives them access to other things that are health promoting and protective for their health. Uh, there's medical access, which we've talked about access to GPs. GPs generally live in those higher income neighbourhoods or around those areas, closer to services. Uh, but we also even see things like junk food outlets, two and a half yes. times as many junk food outlets in the poorest neighbourhoods across Victoria as the richest. And so you do get this divide, uh, which becomes almost um, self-perpetuating and, and, it, mm. and it's absolutely something we can do a lot about. Mm. And the funny thing as well, Dr. Sandra DeMeo, is that this is nothing new. This is a conversation that we've had ad nauseum. Mm. Why is it, when we look across, we look at our international counterparts, we look at places that have walkable cities mm. and, and really implementable models, why is it, do you think, that we're still facing and having this ongoing discussion about access to health? Why haven't we brought in or, or bought into some of these international success stories that are out there? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Actually, interestingly, uh, it was this conversation that public health, modern public health was born out of. It was actually the Broad Street pump and the source of a cholera outbreak in the 1800s and the realisation that it was clustered around a certain postcode where the pumps were that were giving out uh, dirty water wow. that led to the establishment of what we call epidemiology, modern public health today. So we've been talking <laughs> about the... That's just know, giving me a physical reaction. <laughs> I can actually see your, your <laughs> yeah, hands standing up. Yeah. Yeah, so so it was actually um, this idea that our postcode, where we live and the opportunities we're afforded around the places that we live, influence so deeply our health and our health outcomes. That, that that's, that's a conversation we've been having for more than 150 years. But there are countries that are doing well. This is not brain surgery or rocket science. It's not un uncharted territory. There are countries like Denmark, where I lived for three years, uh, you know, similar level of income, as Australia, similar GDP or gross domestic product, uh, similar genetics, and yet they have a chronic disease rate uh, very substantially less. They have an obesity rate half of Australia, and believe it or not, they're actually uh, getting rid of hospitals because they have too many of them. <laughs> There's a message here from Tessa, and it says, so where does personal responsibility come into play? There's plenty of healthy people that live in Outback who are hundreds of Ks from city centres. How much of this comes down to poor town planning infrastructure and what we're not putting into suburbs and how much of it comes down to just bad personal choice because the last thing we want to be doing in this conversation as well yeah. is shaming 
anyone because that doesn't help. Totally. And and, and I think that's a really important uh, point to start with, that this is not about shaming or blaming. Um, and I don't think even the conversation around personal responsibility versus um, individual responsibility should become a conversation about shaming and blaming. At the end of the day, of course, we all choose what we put in our mouths, what we put in our shopping baskets. But I always say there's a big difference between a choice and an option. If it's not an option, you can't call it a choice. So if people are living in neighbourhoods where there is no option to get, um, you know, there's no place to safely walk down the street, there's no lighting to make it feel safe at night, uh, you know, there's no options for young girls to get onto the sporting fields because there's no uh, sporting fields nearby, then, you know, it's not really an, it's not really a choice that people are making and therefore the conversation's not about personal responsibility. Uh, I think, you know, we have to make sure that every Victorian has the option and then we can work on uh, trying to encourage them to get active and make the right choices as well. So many texts on this already coming in. This one, my wife's from a small northern Victorian town and I'm not surprised. Takeaway food options are Chinese, pizza, fish and chips, no cinema or entertainment. Med- medical services are often hours away. The list goes on. That's from Simon. And we'll touch on the differences that you can see between regional and metropolitan areas. But we've got a couple of calls on the line. So let's welcome Meg from near Castlemaine to the conversation. Good morning, Meg. Thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Hi. Yeah, look, um, I live a bit south of Castlemaine, about 13 or 14 k's. And especially in the last few years, five years, there's been a lot of people moved out from Melbourne. Um, before COVID and even during COVID, obviously. Um, there are a lot of people who use the dirt roads, the dirt tracks. They walk up and down the roads in town. They're really active. But most of them, I would say, are under 40. The people who are older, I actually believe, and it's not I'm not having a go at people at all, but it's their expectation that they're going for a more leisurely life. And... We've got great food in our area. We've got great farmers markets. We've got really healthy food. We've got great eating options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those people probably do need, um, we've got great doctors. We've got a range of them. You can't always get into your own doctor, but you can usually get into a different doctor at least. Um, you know, it's their expectation that they are into their retirement. You've raised two interesting things there, Meg, which is looking at age and generationally, what can we see? And I know, Sandra, this is something that you've encountered just of late in terms of even getting housing mm. for GPs. I mean, Meg also mentioned being able to get access to a GP there. That's a big part of this conversation around being potentially overweight or unhealthy. If you can't afford to go and see a doctor, if you don't have a local doctor in your area, Area. So two things that Meg raised are probably mm. bang on. Yeah, and certainly access to um, primary care or GPs in regional parts of Australia, including Victoria, continues to be a big challenge and a national conversation. Um, you know, and then there's the confounder of the fact that GPs, like most people, uh, want to move places where they can find a house, where they can settle down with their kids, where their kids can have good opportunities, um, where they can go to good schools. Uh, and so, you know, almost the, the lack of opportunity creates uh, another generation mm. of mm. of the same. And, and, and looking at how infrastructure and particularly infrastructure investment can break that cycle, I think is really important. And I think, 
the other the other takeaway I think for me from this conversation about Castlemaine is just the incredible strength in across regional Victoria. This shouldn't be a conversation about blame or vulnerability. There are opportunities to learn from uh, localities across Victoria that have really taken measures into their own hands and are doing great things, but they require, you know, investment support uh, from, you know, the broader landscape, including government. So much to unpack and plenty of discussion to be had. Jenny is also in regional Victoria representing on the line this morning, which I love. (laughs) Jenny, you're in St Leonard's. Thanks for giving us a call. Good morning, everybody. Um, Just at the beginning of the program when heart disease, I Obesity and diabetes mm. is mentioned. Mm. It's not defined either type one or type no. two, and a lot of there's still a lot of um, issues Confusion, in the community. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, someone else sent a text in asking a similar thing. So yeah. can you actually be more specific? Yeah, please? yeah, sure. But that's that's my bad. I was actually interestingly enough a, a big shout out to the good people of Wodonga. I went to the 50th anniversary of the diabetes support group, at Aubrey Wodonga support group, last week and gave the keynote. Um, yeah, so I was talking about type two diabetes, which uh, is is what we used to call adult onset diabetes, um, and we're and it is associated with things like diet and physical activity. We're seeing that younger and younger, and we're seeing that more and more, but we are seeing an over-representation of that in regional Victoria. For type 1 diabetes, which is the autoimmune-related, happens earlier in life, I think the big challenge probably in regional Victoria is then about access to healthcare, particularly monitoring mm. insulin and things like that and support. So, yeah, thanks for that call out and really important to differentiate. In just a moment, we'll speak with Infrastructure Victoria because as a state, we've been discussing infrastructure blowouts and what it is costing our state. But in that conversation, we're not talking about what it costs us in Mm. terms of health and preventative medicine. Kath says, I live in an inner city area with good access to fresh food, green open space. However, green space is being eroded by massive apartment development with zero green space. Hence, fresh food markets and councils are trying to turn them into giant food courts for tourists and all of these is Instagram moments. And we'll pull that apart a little bit as well in terms of how do we house people, where do we house Mm. people and how do we find that balance of infrastructure and good health as well. Let's have a quick chat to Kath, who's in Middle Park. Hi, Kath. Oh, hello. What did you want to say? I, you, well, uh, I was actually just reading out your look, text. I, mean, I think I live in a you know really lovely area, but and I work a lot around South Bank and in the city, and I just see that you know there's massive apartment developments going up, and there's no open green space incorporated for the people that live there Mm -hmm. and where there were you know and in the middle sort of suburbs say like Camberwell, Armadale around there a lot of the greenery was from the private gardens but it sort of Mm. you know spilt out onto the street Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean well that's all just disappearing for development and it's just hard how do we find that balance though I mean this debate slash conversation is being having in Gisborne at the moment because some residents want apartments to be built above shops. Other residents Mm. are saying you're stripping away what is the country feel of Mm. this town. It's a challenge. I mean, at the end of the day, people need a place to live and and actually having access to a high-quality house is probably the most important thing we can do for the health of Victorians. So having a shelter over your head, having safe, secure, high-quality housing, on the other hand, you know, going up versus going out, they come with trade-offs and challenges and, and that's where, you know, we need to really 
make sure that it's based on good evidence and thinking about health when we make the decisions, not as an afterthought. So where you live, your postcode, do you feel like it's having an impact on your health? Maybe in a good way, but maybe in a detrimental way. Alex Haynes is the CEO of Whittlesea Community Connections. And Alex, where you are in the Whittlesea area, so when we're talking about these kind of growth areas, but these outer suburban, peri-urban areas, do you feel like there's a lack of access to healthy choices from transport to food for your local community? Yes, there there certainly is. Um, so all the all the comments around um, lack of physical and community infrastructure, the delays in building roads and schools and libraries and space for services, and also transport lack of public transport options where people are. We're a really large geographical area. It's like having. Ballarat and Bendigo in the outer north um, in terms of sort of 230,000 people. Um, and so all those things, are not local jobs, so people are commuting out. So, you know, 15% of our working people, are, you know, which is 10 or 15,000 people, commute for longer than 90 minutes a day. So there isn't much time mm. to mm. do those sort of um, passive or, or active recreation or grow your own food or all those mm. things that we might say are good for people. Um, and all that's coming all that's coming to bear. I think the rate of change in our area, like we'll add um, 120,000 people in the next wow. 10 or 12 years. Mm. Gosh. And so that's like building Ballarat. Mm. Um in 12 years. So as much as we might say the Victorian government or the Australian government needs to hurry up and build things, it just, you know, it's just a scale and a pace mm. that makes it really hard. But also the thing about being in a newer area is everyone is new. So the lack of sort of groups and social connection and, you know, you've got streets full of people who are new to the area or new to Australia. We're a pretty diverse population mm. out in Whittlesea. So you've got lack of understanding of the services and things available i mean we in terms of doctors and things we've got a new suburb relatively new suburb of Woolert. so there's twenty five thousand people living there now um no library no neighborhood house one medical clinic wow and sure in in surrounding suburbs there's there's things um but you have to be able to get there um and we you know we've got things like driving programs to help women who might be isolated at home get to these things but um yeah all, all all of these things you know intersect um food obviously um we're not like castle maine with beautiful food markets um it is a bit of a food desert so um you know and, we've and food been, markets are easier said than done mm. you know yeah. if you're working multiple jobs or you work not the hours of nine to five guess what you don't have time to go to a farmer's mm. market because they're normally <laughs> on at random times and they're not yeah. on your way home to and from work you need to go to a yeah. supermarket yeah and, what, and what's on the side of the freeway on the way to and from work not not a farmer's market it's it's fast food but alex one of the things you brought up it was really interesting is about the social connections i, I actually hadn't considered that before that in new neighborhoods you've got twenty five thousand strangers all living with each other and that's in a way such an amazing opportunity Mm. and this kind of cultural uh diversity is is a really i think beautiful part of um of of what is melbourne but presents some challenges and you've been kind of working on that particularly there in whittlesea around creating those um connections and that sense of community which is so important for mental health but also for understanding where to go even to address things like your physical health issues can you tell us a little bit more about that 
Yeah, so I think we have the advantage of being a, a settlement service provider. So we get to interact with all the um, refugees and people seeking asylum when they arrive in Whittlesea and we are a bit of a settlement destination. So we learn a lot about um, health systems in other countries and how to actually translate um, those messages, key messages around health and mental health um, to a diverse community. So we have things like bicultural health navigators. So they're people that are new-ish to Whittlesea and we train them up. So they might have a health background from overseas, but it's not recognised. So they want to be in health. So Gosh, that's a win-win, up. isn't it? Yeah. That's a whole other issue too. Another not having side of the your skills. Oh, you you and not having out. your skills recognised mm. when you move and how long it takes to have your skills. Oh, there's another show mm. in that one, yeah. Alex. Yeah, there is. <laughs> Alex, it sounds like Whittlesea is potentially a really good test case for other areas because Whittlesea, yeah. it's a diverse area, it's a really growing area and so much of this conversation is about infrastructure when we're building new areas, new houses, new suburbs. Is yeah. there something that we can do or should be doing? We're going to be talking to Infrastructure Victoria later on this hour, but when we're building these new areas do we need to make sure that there are a certain number of green spaces there are a certain amount of land that's that's put aside for doctors and and gps and hospitals and pharmacies when we're building towns can we do it better i i think um there's lots of things drawn on plans so so the planning is done by local and state government it's just the the rollout of that um actual construction of those things um so the earlier those things can be put in the the better so really it's probably not that people aren't planning mm. it's just that they're not delivering in a timely way for a whole whole host of reasons but mm. um, you know to actually and i think to look at the consequences of not not doing that you know you have got twenty five thousand people who are new um you know we've got really high rates of mental health, um, social isolation, gambling harm. You know, we've got four of the top 10 lost gambling venues in Victoria in Whittlesea. So when people aren't connected to something, you know, that there's opportunities to sort of take the wrong path in a sense. Um, so, you know, it does have real world yes. um, implications for not building things fast enough. And this is when and how and why we started this conversation. Mm. When we talk about infrastructure, and the cost blowout, what is the real cost to us in mm. society? And it's all of those things, Alex, that you just mentioned. Alex, I, I could speak to you all day. Mm. I think the work yeah. that you're doing um, out there at Whittlesea is just incredible. Congratulations. I mean, mm. I know you've even got, you know, you're thinking outside the square in terms of providing buses and transport, but mm. also childcare mm. options so that women mm. can work. You, and a you, food hub. Yeah. Food hub. Yeah, food yeah, hub. You know, we really love yeah, fresh, Incredible. Uh, culturally appropriate food too, you know, things that people would be healthy. I mean, a lot of people coming from overseas do have healthy diets but can't translate that mm. here. That's because right, yeah, and culturally are, appropriate mm. food and access to that. Alex Haynes, thanks so much for joining us, the CEO of the Whittlesea Community Connections. I feel like we're going to speak to Alex again in the future. Just a couple of the texts that are coming through on this, and there's so many different angles where you can see why we actually do need to talk about infrastructure, as boring as that may seem on paper. It impacts all of our lives. Liz is in Clifton Springs. So here's just a real-life example. My mum had a knee replacement at the age of 70. As a part of her rehabilitation when she got home, it was to go for progressively longer walks each day. 
But she lived in Clifton Springs at the time, which is a part of the city of Greater Geelong, and there are no footpaths in her suburb. She lived on a relatively busy road and wasn't confident walking on the road. There are no parks or reserves with concrete walking paths, only unstable gravel. This had a terrible impact on her recovery from her operation. It's well, a perfect think, example of why infrastructure is important. Well, and, and also the, the kind of human toll. You would talk about the economic toll, but also the human toll of, of not thinking about some of these things earlier. I mean, that old adage of, an, a, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I mean, if we're trying to retrofit suburbs, if we have to kind of change things later, mm. it's so much harder, particularly when you're talking about people's backyards and neighbourhoods. Whereas if it's kind of just accepted that it has to be part of the process from the very beginning of planning. You know, in Denmark... Is it because it just costs developers too much to put in all this stuff and their profit will no, be whistled down? it's because they don't have to. I mean, it's not in the planning laws. So the planning laws don't really mm. have health as a consideration. We have other considerations, but not health. And so mm. you, you don't have to think about how far are you from a fresh food outlet. In, as I said, in Denmark, where I lived, uh, it, you have to live... Everyone has to live a certain distance from... Uh, a fresh food outlet and so that means that it changes the way that the um, retail industry so the supermarkets industry you know builds their supermarkets because they have to be more distributed not so much the big box stores and you drive a long distance but it also means that when they're building houses they're forced to really think about within it doesn't actually take any cost it just takes a bit of extra thinking of well how far will this housing be from uh, a fresh food outlet and do we have to change either the distance of the housing or the distance of the fresh and food. And the flow-on impact of that in terms of jobs Massive. in the local areas. Well, and in terms of just rates of chronic disease, access to fresh food, you know, all of these sorts of things. The flow-on uh, benefits to society are huge. And the, the flow-on economic benefits. So even if it costs you a little bit more at the start to kind of think about these and factor them into the design, over over a hundred, you know, the next 50 or 80 years that people are living in that environment, you just reap the benefits year on year on year. And that's where town planning comes in. That's exactly what Bex texted us in. Town planning, town planning, town mm. planning. We need to go up and create healthy communal living. It's part of the mental health crisis. Living in big houses, spread out, isolating people. The model is broken. Stop subdivision and realise our environment and Indigenous species need space too. Let's be smart about this moving forward, please, says Beck on the text line. Madeline has given us a call. Meanwhile, Madeline's in Melton. Good morning, Maddie. Uh, what would you like to say? Uh, hi, guys. Um, something that makes me furious. I'm in Melton, which is a, mm. a pretty a generally low, lowest socioeconomic suburb. Um, I, I volunteer at the local high school. Um, I shouldn't say which one. There's about 2,000 kids. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we're listening. Yeah, sorry. Um about 2,000 kids, and on the corner adjacent to the sort of exit to the school, we have, and I'll name them, KFC, Hungry Jacks and McDonald's, all in a row within walking distance to the school. Mm. I, I just wonder who gives permission for that much junk in a... The kids are hungry when they come out of school. Yeah, and mm. it's and it's there and it's access. This is something, Sandra, that you're super passionate yeah. about. No, well, look, first of all, thank you for volunteering your time and, and big shout-out to Melton. I was out there not long ago and it's such a beautiful part of um, Victoria and some fabulous food. Um, yeah, look, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think the idea that we're building junk food outlets, um, at, you know, literally opposite high schools that, you know, we allow the advertising to be on all the bus stops where kids are going to and from school, 
uh, and then we're handing out you know um, vouchers for junk food for kids that do well at Saturday morning sport. I mean, the, this is all. It's all. These are all things that other countries don't allow. They're things that shape the norms and preferences and identity of young people. Um, and and looking at how we actually then increase you know, access to better food. And that's not pointing the finger at teachers. Teachers have got enough going on, um, you know, and it's not about blaming and shaming parents. We can do simple things like redesigning, you know, even just 500, within 500 metres of school. What if we didn't have junk food advertising? What if we didn't have um, multinational junk food outlets? Uh, And we said that that area around schools is a kind of no-go zone. Beyond that, it's personal choice, but we want to protect the, the visual uh, space uh, and the, the food environments mm-hmm. of young people. Other countries have done that and it's made a big difference. And when we talk about access to schools, I know Paul Kennedy and I were talking about just access to sport and being able to participate in sport at your local school. And this relates to this text that says we have lost access to public spaces. Schools are now locked and fenced at nights and on weekends. But as Kieran Perkins told us on our show on Friday, schools can't afford, they want mm. to keep keep their gates open. They want mm. to be able to provide that access for people, but they can't afford to because there's maintenance involved in that. Because yeah, maintenance, people, insurances. All sorts yep, of things. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're investing in a... I was actually had the pleasure of um, judging a, a bunch of um, startups on Friday and, and there are amazing small uh, organisations in Victoria looking at how we do open up uh, these sort of underutilised spaces. Yeah. So there's all these spaces in, in our neighbourhoods that we're not currently using you know, as as much as we could to promote health. Um, I think it is part of the solution. It's certainly part of the puzzle. So many messages on this saying, yeah, shop at a farmer's market. You need to remortgage your house in order to be able to afford it. And lots of people talking about what would make it easy and what wouldn't make it easy. Developers need to put in green spaces. Councils take them out as they don't want to maintain them. Doctors don't want to live in some of these areas, says the text. And many people talking about where we should be building as a way of keeping us healthy. This, it says, it's all about income. It determines where you live, what you eat, who you associate with, and so on and so on. Lower income places have higher level of pokies, which drain money, all sorts of things to try and escape and that entertainment that people need. Whose responsibility is this? Is it state? Is it federal? Why is this even happening? Well, Dr. Jonathan Spear may be able to answer that. He's the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. Jonathan, a warm welcome back to the Conversation Mm. Hour. When we talk about infrastructure and infrastructure blowouts as we have been over the last week or so in this state. Do we calculate our health and preventative medicine in our blowouts when we talk about what bad infrastructure costs us? Does health even get discussed, do you think? Yeah, good morning, Michelle. It's a great question and and I also think Sandra is pretty good too, so you can keep (laughs) him on the show. um, uh, so, so yeah, keep that going. Great conversation this morning. And um, there are some elements of effects of our health that do get countered when there is planning for infrastructure. And so, for example, when there is modelling done and assessment of the impacts of uh, big transport projects, that does take into account, for example, the walking that people do to and from public transport. And and that's actually one of the big benefits that you often get is the, uh, if you like, the inadvertent exercise that people do. But that's a very small part of the big picture. And uh, I think further to the conversation you've been having, it's probably not accounted for enough. And when we look at, for example, the really big uh, role that 
pedestrian infrastructure has safe separated cycling lanes, good quality, uh, linear open spaces. Those are things that we know when you provide those to communities. There are very big preventative health benefits to reduce you know, chronic diseases mm. and um, also give people access to elements of their activities around their own communities. Mm. So that's things we probably don't take into account of enough when we plan for infrastructure. Jonathan, I've got a two-part question for you. One that we're seeing a lot on the text line is whose responsibility is this? Is it local? Is it state? Is it federal? Um, So I'll get you to answer that. But also, I'm really interested to know what actual legislation is there that looks at health when it comes to town planning. Do we need to improve that so it says within X amount of distance of every community we must have access to green space, to um, like a, a health facility and there should be restrictions around where we can actually put fast food outlets, for example. Um, I know I've just dumped a heap on you, but <laughs> <laughs> first off, the, the responsibility. Who's, 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 yeah, who's yeah, is it? Good questions. Yeah, there's a lot in, there's a lot in that. So it's, it's largely a combination of state and local government we're dealing with the sort of issues we are talking about here. Federal government has some role, of course, in funding some of the big infrastructure projects and also um, some of the elements that federal legislation cover, including you know some elements of advertising um, and, and health. But when it comes down to planning growing communities, that's really a collaborative effort between state and local governments. And when you have some of these new communities, you have authorities like the Victorian Plan authority and what they do is they do master plan communities and the sort of green space and other infrastructure that they are going to need as one of your previous callers identified the question then is the delivery of that and the timely delivery of that infrastructure and over recent decades in victoria particularly in melbourne but also regional cities A lot of the population growth has been happening on the edges of our cities and that means that we're not making a lot of use of the existing infrastructure so our capacity to deliver all that infrastructure that new communities need has been really stretched. Jonathan, this is Sandro and first of all, uh, thank you so much for the kind words. (laughs) Right back at you. Um, My question is really around cost because I think, you know, people are worried about cost of living, they're worried about cost of housing and we don't want to do anything that necessarily limits access to housing, which is so important for health, but also the cost of putting a roof over your head. But it would strike me, I mean, certainly looking at other parts of prevention, you know, if you invest a dollar in in, uh, food relief and food systems, you get about $14, $15 back. Uh, The the numbers for tobacco cessation and the quit program is about $20 you get back for every dollar you invest. I mean, is it hugely cost? I, I can't imagine. Is it hugely cost effective, or is it is there a big cost in you know designing neighbourhoods from the beginning at the planning stage that are more health promoting of not putting junk food next to high schools? Uh, you know, as our friend from Melton uh, so eloquently described. Yeah, great question, Sandra. We we haven't looked at the um, specific issue of the location of of. Um, fast food outlets, um, in part because, you know, Vic Health does such great work on that. 
But what we have looked at is, you know, the benefits that you have for communities when they have um, access to pedestrian infrastructure, open space and public transport. Mm-hmm. And um, you, th- there's all sorts of ways you can you can uh, quantify this. There's one study that shows that for every a- a kilometre that you walk daily, there's $1.68 in health benefits mm-hmm. for the walker. Now, <laughs> that's a perhaps overly precise number, um, and, but the point is there are real economic benefits yeah, to individuals absolutely. and to society in terms of avoided health costs and productivity. I just wish that was calculated and was taken seriously. Hey, Jonathan, stay with us because Frank's in Warrigal and you want to say something similar, Frank. Um, yes, I'm concerned that um, the urban heat island effect is not considered in these major projects like Northeast Link and the Westgate Tunnel. The urban heat island is basically caused by large amounts of asphalt, concrete, hard surfaces, denuded of vegetation, and then they put in roads like the Northeast Link will be 23, 25 lanes at one point where it meets Boleyn Road. Um, and I've previously I mean, worked, so for, that, I worked for state government when that was yeah. being planned, and I asked that question, and everyone kind of made, oh, it's too hard. Uh, and I urban the- heat islands are, uh, whether or not we need to fact-check some of those things that you sort of threw around there, Frank, but urban heat islands are real, and mm. depending on where you live and how much tree canopy is will determine whether or not your suburb is up to, what, 10 degrees 10 hotter, Sandra? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, some, I mean, good evidence from um, RMIT and I think even, Jonathan, your team, you know the the health benefits of tree canopy in terms of and 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 green you know even sort of um, nature strips in terms of reducing the um, temperature in summertime, which you know is not just about making it easier to walk to and from the bus. You know it's not forty degrees on the footpath; it's twenty seven. But also it has the flow on effects of um, houses on that street being cooler, needing less air conditioning, saving money, money that then goes back into things like, you know, uh, paying for groceries and other yeah. things and reducing mm. the cost of housing. So the flow-on effects actually of, of trees, whilst there are costs and challenges associated with it, um, of addressing the, uh, the heat, the heat uh, effect um, is, is varied in many. Which is something that I think our next caller wanted to mention as well. So, Karen from Doreen, we'll welcome you to this conversation. Thanks for giving us a call. What would you like to say? Oh, good morning. I was just concerned about lighting in some of these green spaces, particularly for women. Mm. Yeah, uh, we've looked at the safety. Yeah, gosh, Karen, we've done it. I'm going to push you back to, I mean, let's talk about it now, but we did an entire program on looking at the safety in particular for women and gender mm, diverse people important. to be able yep. to exercise. We know that's something that Mary Creek has been looking mm. at extensively, but when we build new running tracks and walking tracks, where does lighting, how effective is lighting? But feeling safe determines yeah. whether or not you exercise. Definitely. Yep. I mean, I was in Ballarat on, on the weekend and we went for a walk around Wind- Lake Windery at night and the, the new lights that they've put in, it makes it makes a huge difference. And the evidence shows that, that people use it, and particularly women and girls are more likely to use spaces that are um, well lit, not overly lit, interestingly, if you can actually go too far, but mm. um, a certain amount of lighting will, will yeah. make a huge difference in terms well, of the I usability the of space. Well, I know the XYX lab at Monash University have been studying this for years, and a lot mm. of it is just about visibility. Yep. So if, you, if there is a, another building or a shop or just another home where you can see them and they can see you makes a huge difference Mm. so when we talk about infrastructure and how we plan then our walking trails need to come into that and if we turn the conversation and return to health and well-being and what we can do to uh, set up towns and cities that make 
a safe and, and healthy place for us. Dr. Jonathan Spear, thank you for staying on the line, the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. I'm going to give you a magic wand. I'm going to allow you to do one thing that changes infrastructure and planning laws to make better health outcomes. You can do one thing. What, what is it? <laughs> one thing. Yep. Well, I've got a long, one, I've got a long list. But the, it's only the, a one-use magic wand. The one, the one thing would for, the, for um, our growing communities to have safe, separated, walking and cycling yeah. connections, mm. which have then... Um, good tree canopy cover, which it does absolutely give really big benefits, and it allows that would allow people to both recreate locally, connect to schools and community facilities, but also connect to public transport. We know that that's one of the big barriers to people um, getting the bus. Now we need to improve the bus connections to these growth areas too. But if you can't even walk to the bus or walk to the station, then people are more likely to drive, mm. and we know that that has adverse health effects and also does degrade those social connections that you were mm. talking about earlier. So those small things, what seem like small things about yeah, good, high-quality yeah. local footpaths and streets uh, where you can cycle on with good tree canopy cover make a big difference. Mm. Jonathan, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Jonathan Spear, the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. This, hey guys, such a great program. I'd like to inform you of two projects between the um, Bendigo Council and the local Catholic Diocese. They're combining schools with local authority using infrastructure for both schools and the local population. A great use mm. of resources. That's from Arthur. That's fantastic. But looking at what your area and what your community has or doesn't have, I want to read this out because I can really connect to it because I spent a lot of my time at the Moe Skate Rink, right? And it says... <laughs> Any chance for you to bring up the most? <laughs> well, it was the place to be, but it was also a form of exercise. This it says, I grew up in Corio in Geelong. It was rough, poor commission area. Our only outlet was our skating rink. And this is why mm. I can connect to it. Moe is very similar. Even the tough guys skated there. It was shut down and a Macca's and a KFC was put up. From that day, crime escalated and those same rough boys ended up just getting into trouble. Mm. So that's heartbreaking. Sue's in the CBD. Hi, Sue. Yeah, hello. What did you want to say? Oh, um, I wanted to bring you back to town planning. Um, I don't know how many of you have actually been to uh, Barcelona in Spain, but I've lived around there for on and off since the mid-90s. Oh, lucky, yeah. And Catalonia and Victoria are very similar in temperature. And I've always wondered, in terms of developments in regional cities and even in our suburbs, why they don't build like the Spanish do. Because what they do is they build like a circle of two, three-storey townhouses or, in fact, apartment blocks, completely enclosing an area mm. where there's a swimming pool and generally pl- yeah. playground equipment. Oh, and we're shutting safe. our public swimming pools down. Let me point you to another conversation hour that we've done on the importance of public swimming pools. They yeah. cannot be overestimated, Sue. I agree. But I, it's a great it's a great one, Sue. And and uh, you see it also, the design in, in many parts of Europe where they have uh, housing on four sides and then a garden in the centre and particularly a children's playground. And what happens is then kids have got a safe place to be able to exercise. You've got some green space. You've got 
got uh, you know a, a way that it keeps all of the housing cool, so reduces air conditioning and other costs. But also parents from pretty much any of the houses can see all the kids down in the centre. So you've got sort of shared shared uh, a childcare, um, which a reduces village. again, and, and a village which reduces the cost and increases social connection. And, and so I think that you know for me the the conversation today is just once again really brought home all of the co-benefits, all the hidden benefits of designing well from the beginning and and you know mental health physical health so many opportunities and i want to do another shout out to moe actually because i've just been reminded because this message has come in saying what about all the kids bmx tracks that have been removed by councils recently across melbourne and even though the skate rink might have shut down in moe after years and years of campaigning they've got a skate park that's opened Mm. up and not only is it opened up it's smack bang in the middle of town right it is right near the train center so there is something for young people to do actually any generation can do but it's physical activity it brings yeah. everyone together it's not hidden yeah. and it's right in the center and that's of town. so clever so as you said so many benefits there in town connect, kids are connecting you know they've got something to keep them busy and and create social connections and friendships and i and i think we are we're realizing in in and many country towns are actually leading the way rochelle and we should give them a shout out because there are councils across the state realizing you know the things we took out were actually what made the social fabric of our communities and now we're, we're starting to put them back it's just how quickly are we putting them back and are we putting them in from the start in the new neighborhoods mm. so when we talk about infrastructure all of these things come into it they make our lives healthier and they make them happier and when you start to pull apart right mm. what is infrastructure you realize how big this is here's just another small yet probably huge element of infrastructure and how it impacts our lives julia is in coburg and she starts her text with benches exclamation point <laughs> these <it>. are amazing <laughs> low-cost options to make places more walkable yeah for those of us with a disability or chronic illness for the young and the old benches can greatly increase the ability to get out and walk yep. because you know you can stop and rest we don't build benches i agree julia and how many times yeah. have you sat down on a bench and then struck up a conversation with someone next to you i mean you're right these these kind of small investments that that have a huge return and something as simple as a bench but we actually started getting rid of street we furniture yeah. we did because yeah. it was seen we started putting in things like hostile furniture so people actually couldn't well we were worried that people would spend it. time yeah. you know that people would sit oh, down but loiter. surely that's the whole do? point <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> i want to see someone who's made a bench that isn't for sitting uh that that just confuses me <laughs> associate professor melanie davin is the director of australian urban observatory at rmit Uh, and joins us now on the line. Melanie, when we're talking about the role that planning can play in health in terms of diseases and and making a healthy, vibrant city, what can we learn from planning in the first place, I guess, to have a a city that aspires and promotes health? And how can we adapt that? Hi, Daniel. Hello, everyone. Um, Yeah, look, I think you've already touched on this through many ways. The main point when it comes to thinking about the connection between planning and health is that I think we need to think about how can we design a place so it's actually easier to live a healthy life rather than an unhealthy life. Mm. That's really the overall aim that we're looking for. And the key here is linking planning to health. So I heard the question to Jonathan earlier, Jonathan Spears, about what would he do? I would say I would link the Planning and Environment Act 
to health. Mm. Actually write health into that app <laughs> because at the moment we yes. don't have it. Yeah. I'm yeah. laughing because Sandro is clapping his hands above his head <laughs> at that comment, <laughs> Melanie. Why don't we do that? Stupid question. Why don't we do that? Well, because, just go, Melanie. Oh, yeah, sorry, Sandra. Um, I, I think because really this is what happens often in government. We talk about the silos. So you have one area of government that's doing its job and you have another area of government that's doing that job. So we had planning over here and we had health over there, but the mm. two weren't connecting. Mm. But really now we know there's too much evidence and that's really what we've been doing at RMIT is trying to create that evidence and make the evidence so it's really obvious and easy to see so that we can now put them together. Now we don't have the excuse of saying, oh, we didn't really know that these two were connected. Yeah, no, a massive shout out, Mel, because you, you really are a world leader and we're so lucky to have um, the RMIT Centre here in in um, Melbourne and Victoria. I mean, do you think that things are starting to change? My sense is that, um, you know, government is is starting to understand really the health consequences, but also, you know, they're, they're kind of too big to ignore. Do you think, um, you know, the, the, the dial's starting to shift and, and you know, um, are there examples of that in other parts of Australia that we can learn from? I do think it's starting to shift, but it's a slow journey. And that's, this is part of that problem. And I think really we have to make it quite obvious so that it's out there and people can see, oh, you put in a, a seat and then mm. you suddenly created an age-friendly neighbourhood. You've, you've created a, a child-friendly neighbourhood. Mm. You put takes a long time to mm. see those developments, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, it? It still does. Like, you know, we're talking about footpaths early and I could talk about footpaths for a long time. It's <laughs> <laughs> another show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like these are things that people think are small things, yeah. but then not. But they make like, such a huge have... difference in people's lives. Absolutely. Go down to the Mornington Peninsula. They don't mm. put footpaths in. Yeah. You know, you go down the residential streets. It's an older, you know, it's a population where there's a lot of older people. How are they getting to the shops? Well, if you haven't even got a footpath to walk on, you're forced to walk on the road with a pram or an older person, how can you be mm. encouraging walking? You know, yeah. these are really small things create huge impact. And it's about making those things easy for us. Melanie, one thing we've spoken about at the top of the show as well is fast food outlets and how concentrated they are in certain areas. And this is something that you've had a little bit of research and got a bit of data into, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. So we've actually looked at this in the Australian Urban Observatory where what we do in our work is map them. So we have a look at an area and we have a look at distance. And this is one of those other things that if you're going to change something here in Australia, we plan according to population. And Sandra, you, you mentioned this earlier as well, I think you're talking about Denmark. If I was going to change another thing, I'd say let's plan with distances, mm. not population. Because if you looked at the distance to where these things are located and yeah. how many supermarkets you have, which we've done, versus how much access you have to fast food, then you see how you're actually creating an environment that's mm. not supporting health. And it's not even the fast food company's fault because they're just doing what they're allowed to do. Absolutely. And what I find frustrating in all of this is we know what the solutions are and yet change is slow. Mm. 
but when we look at the impacts of not making change, it's so dire. We're talking yeah. about people's health. We're talking about people's life expectancy as well. Mm-hmm. Melanie, thanks so much for your time. Associate Professor Melanie Davin there. She's the Director of the Australian Urban Observatory. Yeah, I can't help but feel, Rochelle, I mean, at the moment I feel like we're kind of baking the cake and then trying to put a cherry on the top right at the end and kind of retrofit things. And I think what what Melanie's saying is we need to put this, we need to actually put it in as an ingredient of the cake, bake it into the cake from the start, mm. and that's yeah. about changing the planning laws. Because if you, if you kind of change the compass direction at the beginning of a long walk, it makes very little difference. If you get to the end of that long walk and you've been two degrees off the whole way, suddenly you realise you're 5K from your destination and it's a whole lot extra work. So, you know, I think when it comes to cost and access and all of these things, building in a bit more of this thinking at the starting point yeah. would just have massive dividends and, and, and dividends across so many parts of society. This message it says, small things, big things grow. Mm. And it's so true. And so we started out talking about infrastructure, but what we're really talking about is happy and healthy lives. And we need to put that into it. As yeah. always, Dr. Sandro DeMayo, CEO of Vic Health, thank you. Thank if you. people have been listening and they wanted to contribute to this conversation or this other areas, we cover topics like this all the time on the Conversation Hour. So go to the ABC Listen App and subscribe to the Conversation Hour. As as always, Daniel Miles joining us from the lovely ABC Warnable, where your change of life, I mean, you've gone from the city mm. to, to the country. Mm. about a great place to live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the a, best life. It's a glorious place to be. I'm going to breathe in some sea air after this and go for a long walk. $1.68 for every K I do. That's just blowing my Even mind. Even though you're a little quick on your Christmas decorations that I can see on the team's <laughs> link here with all of your tinsel and Christmas lights. I'll just leave that there. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.